Well, we're in Romans 10, and we're looking at verses 14 and 15. Romans 10, verse 14 and 15. You can open up your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Romans 10, verse 14 and 15, and we'll be reading this together. Romans 10, verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, countless products are introduced every year on Amazon. Now, many of these products are designed and engineered by young entrepreneurs in America, and no doubt their initial products are quite excellent, and they convince investors with some high-quality test products to invest in their endeavor. But by the time the product comes to mass production, what they often sell doesn't exactly meet their expectations. I've certainly bought a few of those things on Amazon myself. Quality controls have failed in some factory overseas, and the product becomes a flash in the pan. Uh, Definitely not the beginnings of a sustainable business venture. If you want to establish a brand and keep consumers coming back, you have to learn to maintain quality. And so very often... Starting slower and smaller is better than bigger and faster. It's very similar to what can go wrong with gospel ministry. Big, flashy events, programs that keep people entertained, spontaneous baptisms and conversion counting, all of it can water down the simple proclamation of the gospel message that so often happens best one-on-one. And in small, quality-controlled batches. We do this because we often want instant results. Everything bigger and better in the gospel ministries can can end up getting convoluted with with wrong goals if we're not careful. and, And sadly include little gospel content. And so there's very important, uh, it's very important and very simple question that all Christians need to answer. What is the mission of the church? What is her goal? Now, most will say it is to be engaged in spreading the gospel and God's good news ministry. But what does gospel ministry practice look like? And the answer to that question often varies. See, some say the gospel transforms culture in an act of national obedience, and so the church is highly engaged in politics, in, in fighting the injustices and sins that they see around them. This can be a temptation of both the right and the left. Others say gospel ministry provides humanitarian relief to the hurting and most vulnerable in the world. And so it tries to meet simple physical needs around the globe. Others say the gospel is to get people interested in Jesus as Savior, the one who can meet their their felt needs to introduce them to Jesus and keep them connected to some sort of Jesus community, they might say, to lead people to individual expressions of their unique faith that suits them. But each of these ideas of what is the mission of the church, what is the goal of the church, really represents something you might call mission creep. I'm not saying that these are creeps who are engaged in mission. You see, mission creep is actually a military word. As various wings of the U.S. Armed Forces have been deployed all over the globe, many of them have described their most ineffective periods as coming on the heels of what they call mission creep. 
It's what happens when the main objective of their mission gets sidetracked and ancillary things, extra things, slowly take over valuable time and valuable resources so that eventually uh, the military doesn't know what it's supposed to be doing and experiences something they call missions creep. And so it is with churches. We get distracted from the verbal proclamation of the gospel. We get distracted from other things, sometimes sometimes very good things. And we can experience mission creep. You see, that's why it's so important to think about our mission using the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we get into Romans 10, before we do that, let's look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, perhaps the best couple of verses to help describe the mission of the church. These are some of Jesus' final words to the apostles, and it was to direct their mission and keep them from deviating from the mission. So in Matthew 28, we're going to first read verse 18. I love how he prefaces this. This is maybe something you don't always equate with verse 19, but, but listen to Jesus, how he introduces the mission of the church. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, first part of the mission of God and to make sure the mission of the church is focused and centered on where it needs to be centered on is to recognize the highest of all earthly authority is always going to be King Jesus. He is Lord over all. He is Lord of everything that we see and he reigns forever. And so with that in mind, with that as the starting point for the church's mission, we see these words, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. Now, in English, there are multiple commands. In fact, the very first command we see in verse 19 is very a simple command. It is go. But in the Greek, there is actually one command, and it is not the word go. The one command in these two verses is make disciples. The one central focus of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to go and make disciples. Now, going is how you go make disciples, right? You don't make disciples by staying and by just uh, knowing your own couple of Christian friends, and that's it. You don't make new disciples by staying. You have to go, and so go is a descriptive of what we are to be doing as we make disciples. And then the other thing that the church is to be doing, they're to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What happens when you first become a Christian? You should be baptized. You see, baptism is what marks our initiation into the body of Christ, Romans 6 tells us. And so this is the first sign of becoming and belonging to a church family is to be baptized into the Lord Jesus' body. And then he says, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we understand that when you go make disciples, you don't just do so by, by going out. You do so by going out, preaching a clear gospel message so that they are converted and saved, and then you baptizing them, and then you teach them because you don't just stop at saying, okay, I know about Jesus, and now I'll let you go your way. No, you teach them all the things that I have commanded you. So you are maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And so... If you look at our church bulletin, we have the mission of the church, the mission of FBC Baptist right on the front. And it's a reflection of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It says very clearly, we exist to honor God by making, that is baptizing, that is initial conversions of, uh, of new Christians, and maturing, that is teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, disciples of Jesus Christ, that main command. We are making and maturing 
disciples, followers of the Lord. See, the mission of the church is to be clear on gospel content and then to go tell others of the glories of that same gospel content. And that mission can't be fulfilled solely by the church as an organization, but as each member of the church goes out on mission like a living organism. This can't be fulfilled simply by the church as an organization, but only when each of us go out and are on mission, living like a living organism, right? So we're alive, we're going out, and we're infecting the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Determining the mission of the church, then, isn't just important for church leaders. It's important for all of us. Because God designed you to go, to be his gospel messenger, You have unique connections. You have unique relationships with people in your life, people who need to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so First Baptist Church, we need to realize very clearly that God calls you to go out and help fulfill the mission of the church. You are God's gospel messengers. So turn back to our passage in Romans chapter 10 where Paul gives us an outline for how one actually becomes a Christian or a disciple of Jesus Christ. He shows us how it is that someone gets to the point of faithfully belonging to a church, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and it starts with someone sharing the gospel. Salvation goes back, humanly speaking, to a Christian going out and clearly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We're in Romans 10 now. Romans 9, the emphasis was on how the Lord sovereignly chooses those whom he's going to choose before the foundation of the world. Now, humanly speaking, we understand that salvation always goes back to someone going and teaching the good news. And so as we look at our text this morning, we're going to discover, discover two motivations to preach the gospel. These are two reasons that remind us that God has sent us as his gospel messengers. As Paul takes apart how it is that we get to the point of saving faith, he reminds us that it is always going to go back to the gospel message and the gospel messenger. And so then we are motivated, since all gospel conversions start with a gospel conversation, we're motivated to start the gospel conversation, to share the gospel. We're motivated to be an instrument in the Lord's hand and be sent wherever the Lord would have us to proclaim the gospel. Well, our first motivation to preach the gospel is is very simply, saving faith follows gospel proclamation. We're motivated to go preach the gospel because saving faith follows gospel proclamation. And so we are then to be those gospel proclaimers. Now, you may not have realized this, but but C.S. Lewis, on several points, taught what should be called heresy. Perhaps the most obvious example is that C.S. Lewis was what you would call an inclusivist. An inclusivist. This is the idea that you can be saved even if you reject what you know of Christ or are ignorant of Jesus altogether. For example, the, the last book of the Narnia series, there's a young man named Emmeth, and he is a worshiper of the false god Tash. And he is still accepted by Aslan because Emmeth was sincerely devoted to his false god. It's this idea, you might have heard it um, said elsewhere, that God is on a mountain and many paths lead up to that pinnacle of God, some through Buddhism, some through Christianity, some through other religions, right? And this idea is called inclusivism. Many religions get you to the one true God, but Uh, Contrary to what C.S. Lewis teaches, that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. And in fact, you also see in in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's book, he says these words, There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity, and thus they belong to Christ without knowing it. But beloved, there are no secret Christians Of course, this flies in the face of Jesus' own words in John 14, 6, which says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What? No one comes into the Father but through me. 
See, inclusivism can't possibly comport with the Holy Spirit's goal of exalting Christ alone for salvation. It can't comport with 1 John 4, which speaks of false spirits as as those who do not claim Jesus Christ. As you simply read the New Testament, there is no room for inclusivism, no room for someone who has never heard the name of Christ getting to heaven based on how sincere they are in their religion. You see, being right with God, eternal salvation, only comes after the gospel message is proclaimed in Christ alone. Look at verse 17 in Romans 10. Look at verse 17. Paul is so clear. We'll get to this next week. But he says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Not some other gospel message, not some other religion, not some other uh, deity, but comes through Christ alone. Paul is crystal clear about the exclusivity of Jesus in these verses. And if you're spiritually alive, you can't help but be stirred up to action, to to be generous with our time, and to share the glorious good news of reconciliation with God that happens in Christ alone. And so after extolling the evidences of genuine saving faith, Paul next details how you come to saving faith. And he's going to do this in reverse order in our passage, verses 14 and the first part of 15. He's going to detail how you come to saving faith. He's going to start with the necessary fruit of faith or what happens after you become a Christian and then logically work backwards to personal faith, then to how you must hear the message and how the message must be preached and then finally how the messenger must be sent. And all of these points are essential points along the path to hearing and knowing and believing the gospel. And so starting at the end, if you have saving faith, you will, first point here, cry out to Jesus as Lord. Cry out to Jesus as Lord. This is always the fruit of a redeemed life, of a genuine Christian. Genuine Christians fully believe that Jesus Christ is Lord over over everything, and they're not afraid to do something about it. And perhaps a first and obvious example is what comes out of our mouths. And so Paul asks the question, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? This point is very similar. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said that in Luke 6, 45, right? When you believe something in your heart, you certainly are going to speak about it. You're going to talk about it. You're going to proclaim it to others. Paul has really already addressed this connection between heart and mouth in the previous verses. In fact, that's his whole point in verses 9 and 10. Why don't you read those verses with me? It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. His point is, look, the heart is the volitional center of our deepest desires. It gets to what we think and know to be true. And the mouth, the mouth is the public vehicle for what is actually in the heart. So if your mouth confesses, all of your most important convictions should be obvious then to the watching world. True faith in Christ is never a private matter. It speaks, and it speaks of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so he says very clearly, right, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. This is very clearly in verse 10, right? With the mouth one confesses and is saved. She says, believe in your heart, you're justified, you're declared right. You confess with your mouth, you are saved, you're delivered from what you rightly deserve, which of course is God's punishment for your sin. And so Christians have both. We have a heart that believes and a mouth that confesses, because this is the evidence that you truly are a child of God. And so verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, when I worked more with teens and young adults, I remembered encountering some particularly shy young people. You know, the one-word answer types. The yes, no, okay, maybe. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, one of the, the best ways to reach into that individual's life is to figure out what gets them talking. Uh, sometimes it's video games or, or movies or, or cars. Sometimes it's sports or music or a family vacation or, or school. It could be any number of things. And so we should try and get into that person's life to get them talking because everyone has something to say and it often has to do with what occupies a lot of their thoughts. And what occupies a lot of their thoughts is what occupies their greatest heart desires. So what's the application? What are your words reveal about your heart's desires? Do you speak of Jesus with others? Do your coworkers or classmates or neighbors know that you are a Christian? You don't have to be obnoxious with a bumper sticker or yard signs or Jesus t-shirts here, but the priorities of your life should speak volumes to everyone who knows you. Where are you every single Sunday? Where are you when you have a care group night? You're, you're faithfully involved in the body life of the church. Your holy conduct should be attractive. Look, are you the kindest, most gracious of all your neighbors, even with the ones that everyone likes to talk about behind their back? Listen, the little literal words of your mouth should lift high Jesus as Lord of all. And so are you afraid to talk about Jesus unless you already know that that person's a Christian? Paul's point is simple. If Jesus is Lord of your life, then you will speak of him. Christians are not silent. We are not secret Christians. Christians don't simply like Jesus as Savior, but never speak or honor him or extol him as Lord. Along with boldly crying out to Jesus as Lord. Second, we see here, believe in the work of Christ. And so the end of kind of salvation, the culminating point is that we are all crying out to Jesus as Lord. And then we also understand that we must believe in the work of Christ. Paul's logically connecting the process of becoming a Christian. He first emphasizes the fruit and next the faith. Because he's moving backwards, right? And to show us how the process of coming to saving faith is connected. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Again, echoing the heart of faith and the confession of our mouth, they are necessary connections, as he's already done in verses 9 and 10. And so what is it that we must believe according to those previous verses? Look back up in verse 9. As you look at verse 9, what is it that everyone must confess with their mouth and believe in their heart? Well, first of all, that Jesus is Lord, we just covered that. But then it says that you, that you believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead. See, the resurrection is really the culmination of the whole complement of the work of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Because he was dead, right? To understand and proclaim and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you have to understand that Jesus died for a very specific purpose. You have to understand the question, why did Jesus have to die? And your answer to that question, why did Jesus have to die, really gets to the heart of the gospel, to, to why we even really need the gospel. You know, some will say, you know, Jesus was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if that was the case, why did he have to die then? Why was it so important that he rise? Others will say Jesus died to deliver us from Satan. But if that's the case, shouldn't we still be terrified of Satan gaining some sort of foothold in our lives and go about and try and slay Satan and the say, satanic influences around us? Others say Jesus died to bring peace to the whole world. And then you look at history and you think, you know, there's quite a bit of world war going on and there's pretty much been unceasing conflict for the last 2,000 years. Did Jesus fail? 
So we come back to the question, why did Jesus have to die and rise again? Very simply, because a... Because, because God really is, is, is holy. He's righteous and he's perfect and he's the judge of all. And, and left to our own devices, when we come before a holy and perfect and righteous judge of all, we're incapable of attaining to a standard of perfection and get to heaven. So why did Jesus have to die? It all comes down to uh, remembering who God is. Listen to how John Calvin describes God from Job. He says these words. Let us envisage for ourselves that judge, not as our minds naturally imagine him, but as he is depicted for us in Scripture, by whose brightness the stars are darkened, by whose strength the mountains are melted, by whose wrath the earth is shaken, who catches the wise in their craftiness, beside whose purity all things are bare, whose righteousness not even the angels can understand. Let us behold him, I say, sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of men who will stand confident before the throne. Who can dwell in the devouring fire, asked the prophet. Who can dwell with the everlasting? You see, when you have a radically holy view of God, we can't even fathom doing enough good things to merit God's forgiveness or reconciliation with that holy God. We can never earn a place in heaven by being a good person. So Jesus then had to die for us as a substitute. He had to be sacrificed in our place and God had to pour out his wrath on Jesus instead of us to satisfy his just or fair demands that all sin must be punished. And since all sin must be punished, it is either punished on Jesus or it's punished on us in hell forever. So really, as we believe in the work of Jesus Christ, that he rose from the dead, this always must include a conviction of our own sin, really, before a holy, magnificent, and powerful God. Again, Calvin puts it like this, we will never have enough confidence in him unless we become deeply distrustful of ourselves. And a heart of faith is just that. Confident trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross fully satisfies God. Genuine faith is a genuine trust that the star crusher, black hole maker, mountain melter is no longer at war with me, but is at peace because of what Jesus did. Because his wrath rests in Christ in our place. And by virtue of trusting that his sacrifice is enough, we not only believe, but we confess with our mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord over all. But if you kind of go back in the progression of how saving faith happens, before we have faith, we have to, number three here, hear and understand the gospel message. And this makes sense. If you can't just make up reasons why Jesus had to die, if you can't just make God to be a judge that you'd like him to be and wink at your indiscretions and your sins, then you have to hear and understand the gospel. The gospel is always a message that has objective, true content that must be known in order to be believed. And look back at verse 14 again, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him um, of whom they have never heard? And so Paul makes the point, uh, the ears and the brain have to be involved with faith. Faith is not some assent to the irrational. It isn't some embrace of a fairy tale that is true for you. Faith is heard, it's knowable and defendable from error. Faith is based on what is true. The ramifications for this are massive. And when we think about all the money that gets spent in the name of missions and large portions of it go to work that can really better be described as humanitarian aid or, or helping build a structure or society or a work that is not directly related to sharing the gospel, Remember, you have to hear the gospel in order to 
believe the gospel and to call on the name of the Lord. And yet how many Christians focus their lives, focus even missionary dollars on making the world a more comfortable place while, while rarely, if ever, proclaiming the good news? There's a, a man named Brian Biedebach, who's a, a missionary to Africa. Uh, I actually knew, knew this gentleman, and uh, he was well aware of the glut of well-meaning Americans coming to help the poor in the country of Malawi. And he encourages us to consider what perhaps Paul would have written to Rome if he had adopted the current mission mindset that we see today, right? That, that humanitarian aid is, is by far the most important. So he writes this. In Paul's day, Rome was a sprawling metropolis with over a million residents, and its social woes were equivalent to or worse than those of any modern city. Poverty was rife, and there was a massive gap between the elite rich and the desperate poor. Unemployment hovered at catastrophic levels, with up to 200,000 people in the city regularly, and all too willingly, living off state-sponsored welfare. Crime, prostitution, pollution, slavery were all normal parts of life for the city of Rome. So did Paul write like a modern mission strategist would, saying things like this? I can't wait to come to Rome to lead the charge of Christ-centered social justice or to reform the community to make sure it reflects my conservative ideals. We need to proclaim Christ's love for the city by working to improve the general civility, race relations, and social conditions of Rome. We need to eradicate slavery and poverty. We need to start orphanages. The cynical people of Rome won't listen to the gospel unless we first help them flourish socially and eco. Economically. Is that how Paul started Romans? Go to Romans chapter 1. Let's see how Paul started Romans. Paul said things very, very clearly. Paul wrote Romans 1 verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, beloved, countless missionaries get to some foreign field, very fuzzy on the gospel, having rarely shared it in their homes. And so therefore, missionaries must be clear on the gospel, but perhaps the most unashamed to share the gospel. And you need to observe that before we send them out as missionaries, which is exactly what every Christian is called to do themselves, just share the gospel, right? Because the power of God to transform the world comes about one soul at a time when we share the gospel, when it is heard, when it is understood, and when it is believed. And so, so naturally, if you have to hear and understand the gospel message, then we, know, we must know the gospel message, and it must be preached clearly. That's our goal. That's our mission. And so we also know that for the gospel to go out, our next point here, a Christian is faithful to explain the gospel. A Christian must be faithful to explain the gospel. And go back to Romans 10. Since Christianity is essentially about a message, a messenger must be sent. A message needs to be proclaimed, heard, and believed. So Paul's point is clear in verse 14, right? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. 
So since Christianity is about a message, and since we are all called to confess with our mouth the glorious truths of the message of the gospel, to proclaim that Christ is Lord because of what he accomplished on the cross, since I'm called, like all Christians, to tell of the greatest news the world has ever known, then I want to be as persuasive and clear and passionate about the gospel as I possibly can be. There really should be nothing that takes a higher place in our passionate discourse. Not politics, not financial prudence, not education, not even in how to raise our kids. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ touches on all of those areas. And we should always be passionate about the gospel. But we should also be clear. We should be able to answer the question, what is the gospel in two minutes? Then again in five minutes, and then a 10-minute version, depending on how much time you got. We should be able to use the Bible to help explain the gospel. And we should have patience with those we share the gospel with because sometimes it takes a while for them to get it. Perhaps it took some of you a while to get it. Let's not be quick and excited simply to get people interested in Jesus, call it a win, and move on. For example, Aubrey Sakaria reports of an event put on by an Indian pastor in North India. He was a witness to this event. He was at the event, and he said, A large crowd was gathered, and a message was preached about the power of Jesus to heal and provide for all their needs. And then the preacher asked this large crowd of people, who had puri bhaji for breakfast? It's a staple Indian breakfast food. And he said, raise your hands. And basically every hand went up. And then he put down their hands and he said, and who wants to never go hungry again? Raise your hands. Many put their hands up, virtually the whole crowd. Pictures are snapped of the crowds with all these raised hands. And then this man reported to his wealthy Western donors the picture of the hands raised with the very simple caption, more decisions for Jesus Christ. Interest in Jesus is not conversion. A false hope presented in the name of Jesus is not a faithful proclamation of the gospel. We must be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. We must be ready to summarize the gospel very clearly. I'll do it to you, for you in, in one minute here, okay? Four hooks to hang your hats on in the gospel, okay? God, man, the work of Jesus, and a response. Every Christian, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to know who God is. You have to worship him as the holy, righteous, omnipotent creator God of everyone and everything. He is sovereign over all, and he has the only authority to receive the praise and worship of humanity. He is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you come before a holy and righteous and omnipotent God like that, you look at who we are as humanity. Who are we as humanity? We are sinners, and every single one of us is guilty before a holy and perfect God if the standard is perfection. And so, therefore, we cannot earn our salvation by our good works. And so the third point, we need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ came as perfect, holy, God and sinless man, and he died on the cross as a substitute, bearing God's wrath for our sins in our place. And then he not just stayed dead in the grave, but he rose from the dead to prove that he had the power over sin and death so that we could, too, have the hope of a resurrected eternal life. And then four, what is the response that saves? The fourth part of the gospel is to understand that we need to repent and believe. We need to turn away from living for ourselves, pick up our cross daily, as it were, denying ourselves every day, and follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You should be able to do that in a minute and a half, too. And if you have a hard time on the back as you walk out, there's a track rack. Go ahead and pick up some of those tracks and take some of those and read that over and over again until it becomes familiar. There's several of them that are really good. There's a what is the gospel track. There is a three by five card with a bunch of uh, verses on it. There is a two ways to heaven track. And there's a lot of good tracks out there. Get it, take it, read it so that you can do that too. 
That's why we wanted to give you the Catechism for Christian Growth. That book is incredibly helpful for those who are interested in knowing and learning more about who Jesus is and what God did for them. That's why we try and go through Fundamentals of the Faith with people. That's why there's other good books that are written. And sometimes you simply need to be committed to having ongoing conversations with someone because you've shared the gospel. You're going to share it again and again in unique ways depending on the situation. So be patient as you faithfully and clearly share gospel content with those that you want to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Well, there's a final step, or I guess you could say it's a first step. Before you can preach, you need to be equipped and sent. A Christian is equipped and sent. In order for the gospel to be proclaimed, we must go. We talked about that right at the beginning, right? We must heed Christ's call to go, therefore, to make the disciples. Verse 14 and 15. Look at Paul's argument. It's completed now. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Really, this is a call for every Christian. And since none of us are God, we can't know if we might be the only Christian in your friend's life. So be bold. Share the gospel with the people that God has put in your life. You don't know if you have tomorrow. They don't know if they have tomorrow. With that being said, some of us are called into a more concentrated form of gospel ministry and sent out. Like some of you are going to be Sunday school teachers. Some of you are going to be home Bible study leaders. Some of you are going to be care group leaders or maybe a counselor or an elder or maybe even a missionary or maybe even a pastor. Listen, that's why seminaries exist. That's why we have equipping classes on how to study Bible and how to prepare a Bible study. That's why we have theological reading groups that happen throughout the year. It's why many of us read books together with our Christian friends and within our care groups. Why? Because we want to make sure that we are equipped for whatever ministry God would have for us to do. And I'm praying that God would raise up many of you in this church to be faithful leaders for years and years to come. That we would equip you well and perhaps give us a chance to send some of you out in many different capacities, missionaries, pastors, and assuredly as future elders. However, most of you will simply remain as faithful engineers, faithful salesmen, faithful workers at home who want to be, first of all, faithful Christians. And so God wants you to be his messenger to your respective sphere of influence. And don't settle for a basic gospel knowledge. Grow. Learn about what it means to serve Christ as Lord. Get equipped and get going. Because your feet going outside of your comfort zone is how God brings about gospel change. When we finally get to our second motivation to preach the gospel, first motivation, saving faith follows gospel proclamation, so we got to proclaim it. Second motivation to preach the gospel, gospel proclamation reflects true beauty. Now, most of you spend at least a few minutes on how you look. I can appreciate that as I look out into uh, the congregation. I think basically everyone has done that. The exception of a few middle school boys who take this approach. Right, you know, and then put on whatever comes out of their drawer. I know this because I have a middle school boy. But most of you try to be a little bit more put together. Now, you're not expecting to grace the cover of a magazine. But sadly, we've still been trained to think wrongly about the pinnacle of beauty. We look at some standard of beauty, a certain body shape, maybe a, a hairstyle or a makeup style or a youthful glow that emanates from certain people. And you think, wow, she or he is gorgeous. But how many times do you see feet 
bare feet in all their glory, gracing the prime real estate on magazine covers? Probably never. Because feet aren't particularly beautiful. Even if you try to paint your nails, as some of you do, most of us aren't really enamored with feet. And yet, here is Paul extolling the virtue and beauty of feet by quoting Isaiah 52, 7. Look at verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, of course, beauty isn't found in the actual feet of these individuals. Beauty is found in where those feet lead the gospel preacher to go. In what they lead the gospel preacher to do. Beauty is found, perhaps most highly in all of life, in gospel proclamation. True beauty is found in faithful obedience and service to Christ as Lord of all. Put this as an example. Uh, Paul Brand was a renowned Christian, renowned Christian doctor serving in India for most of the mid-20th century. And he grew up in India himself, born to missionary parents. His dad died when he was 15, but his mom lived long into her 90s. And after Brand returned to India after a 20-year absence for medical school and residency and extended studies in the early 20th century, he remembers seeing his mother, I believe it was the year 1946 or so, for the first time in about 20 years, and she was 70 years old. And Granny Brand, as she was known to the people who were ministering with her, looked far older than her 70 years, and her astonished son remarked as such, Mom, you look old. I'm sure not his finest hour. But for the next 20 years of her life, Granny Brand took out all the mirrors from her home to stop reminding her how old she actually looked. And she continued to faithfully serve the ladies in her region. And at her death, hundreds of Indian women showed up to pay their respects to their spiritual mother and grandmother. See, Granny Brand got this. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. She understood Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Gospel proclamation is the most beautiful and glorious thing that we can do. And although some may do it more than others and others a little bit less, we are all called to be beautiful in God's economy. So how beautiful are your feet? Are they going where God wants you? Are they proclaiming the message that God wants you? We also need to realize that Christ's gospel message to a sick and perishing world will sometimes look at your feet that brings this message and find them quite odious. They will hear your gospel and be offended. This is like what we heard about this last week in Oxford, England. The Times of London picked up on an Oxford organization designed to help students pick churches. The organization was called Oxford Safe Churches. And what this organization did was they went through every single church in the area and they rated every church based on how friendly that church was to LGBTQ plus ideology. And they published the names of pastors who called anything in the spectrum sinful and gave them the lowest marks. They even downgraded churches that remained silent on the issue for not celebrating enough with them. But every Christian knows there is no wiggle room to call a sin that Jesus died for beautiful. And part of gospel proclamation is to preach the glorious, the holy God's verdict on the sinfulness of sin. That, frankly, is what an unbelieving world finds reprehensible. 
And so as we close, I want you to be motivated to share the gospel, but I want you to be aware of the cost. Some may hate you because God's gospel is designed to shake us to our core. Because as Calvin said, we will never have enough confidence in him unless we become deeply distrustful of ourselves. And so as you share the gospel and some believe, that act will become the sweetest, most delightful act in that person's life as they see God for who he is and see them for who they are for the first time. And as the angels rejoice in heaven, your obedience will be a pleasing aroma to God. So be motivated to preach the glories of the cross, the glories of a crucified Savior who suffered, bled, and died so you and I could be reconciled to our maker. Be the evangelist that God has equipped you and called you to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to study your word, to be reminded of how it is that people come to know you as their Lord and Savior, and to be reminded that we play an integral role in that process. Lord, help us to be a faithful people who know the gospel message very clearly and who proclaim the gospel message clearly to those that you have put into our lives. Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Lord, we're reminded of a glorious picture of the gospel. We take the supper and we always look back at the cross work of Jesus Christ, the accomplishment of a sacrifice for sins that happened once for all. Lord, we also look up remembering that we now have access to God. We now can take everything directly to God because we have our perfect mediator, our perfect priest directly at the throne, right hand of the throne of grace. But this feast is also a time of introspection too. And so we do pray that you would help us to look within, help us to self-examine our own hearts, to recognize our faults and our failures and to bring them humbly to you realizing that you've paid it all because of Christ's work. We also look around as we are those who are many, and we partake of this one body, this one bread. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, we celebrate what you've done in creating a body of Christ here at First Baptist, creating a church family, those who belong to you. Lord, and finally, we look forward. Lord, I pray that you would help us to anticipate that great day of your return, that day when our faith becomes sight and we get to be forever with you in your new heavens and the new earth. Lord, help us to rejoice and celebrate your goodness in giving us Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.